When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Hi, Genanthro listeners. Before we get to the show today, we wanted to let you know that you can now find our podcast in a new place, Smithsonian.com's Anthropocene Hub. There you can explore more stories about the age of humans. To find the Anthropocene Hub, go to SmithsonianMag.com and under Science, click on Age of Humans. All right, let's get to the show. Generation Anthropocene is supported by Stanford School of Earth, Energy, and Environmental Sciences, Find out more at earth.stanford.edu. We're also supported by Worldview Stanford, whose mission is to create interdisciplinary learning experiences for professionals. To learn more about Worldview, visit worldview.stanford.edu. 4.6 billion. The Earth forms. Cambrian. 542 million. Complex life explodes. Permian Triassic. 251 million. 90% of species die. Cretaceous tertiary. 65 million. Meteor kills the dinosaurs. 55 million. Primates appear. 2.3 million. Pleistocene. 200,000. Humans 20,000. Agricultural 250. Industrial revolution. 60. Great acceleration. The Anthropocene. Welcome to Generation Anthropocene, where we tell stories of people, the planet, and people on the planet. I'm Mike Osborne, and on today's show, we're bringing you an interview with Oliver Morton. Oliver is the Essays and Briefings Editor at The Economist, and back in 2011, he wrote a cover story for The Economist entitled, Welcome to the Anthropocene. A lot of people point to that story as the moment when the Anthropocene concept started to enter the mainstream, and Oliver's article was a huge inspiration for this show. He was recently in the Bay Area promoting his new book, The Planet Remade, How Geoengineering Could Change the World. If you've never heard of geoengineering before, this is the idea that humans could take large-scale action to try and regulate the temperature of the planet, usually by injecting particles into the atmosphere to diminish incoming solar energy. It's controversial, and our producer, Miles Traer, began the conversation talking with Oliver about his new book and his views on geoengineering. Let's get to the interview now. I guess I came to this all in a slightly roundabout way. When I started off in science writing um, in the 1980s, I quickly found, I hadn't necessarily expected this, but I quickly found that I really liked writing about planetary scale phenomena. And so when I wrote my first book, I wrote a book about Mars. And, of course, the only way you can engage with Mars, even as we're now quite intimate with it, is, is still through your imagination because you're, you know, you're not actually sitting there in Gale Crater. That's a lump of metal that's doing your bidding and you, you begin to anthropomorphize, but it's still an imaginative projection to put yourself there. So I found that fascinating. I liked the mixture of the personal and the planetary. 
Um, and so when I came to write uh, my next book, I, there were no other planets in the solar system as interesting as Mars except ours. And so I wrote about the least Martian aspect of the Earth, which was, to me was photosynthesis. That book already took me into ideas of profound human change to the system. The middle section of that book is about photosynthesis in Earth history, and it gets up to the question to the point where humans take over a significant part of the um, photosynthetic product of product of the of the planet and also a point where the humans take over a significant role in the carbon cycle and so the mars book made me think about how humans might take over a planet because it went into ideas of terraforming so for me there's a there's a very influential paper by tom wigley from 2006 i think where he talks about buying time with geoengineering and although i don't see it quite like that that's much closer to my view of how geoengineering might work than the idea that it's a a fully satisfying alternative form of action i think talking about geoengineering without also talking about emissions reduction um is uh borders on lunacy. Um, I can see why some people do it, but it's not a view that I in any way endorse. I think that geoengineering is an expansion of your modes of response to the realities of the carbon climate crisis. Uh, I don't think that it's an alternative. It's just one more tool. And I also don't think that it's a, a necessary ingredient of either a likely or a best outcome. I just think that you get a much broader sense of the problem if you include the idea of intentionally modifying the planet in other ways as part of the way you address it. Just a few years ago, the Anthropocene was kind of a niche word or a niche concept, what I would say, at best. Mm -hmm. And I would actually credit your cover article as really starting the popularization of that term. How did you pitch that story? Like, how did you get that story greenlit? It's very interesting. Um, There was a meeting in London, a meeting of the Geological Society of London. I mean, I'd been aware of this sort of discourse going on. Um, I knew about the meeting of the Geological Society of London. And I pitched it as we have opinion pieces, leader articles and other pieces. And I pitched it as a a, a small leader saying, hey, there's this interesting thing going on. And it just caught the imagination of the room. It was a different way of talking about global change. Um, it was a way of talking about global change that wasn't um, purely a conservation story, wasn't purely an energy story. And it was also, um, my colleagues at The Economist and indeed I are very interested in history. And it was a way of sort of like reconceptualizing history. And it, it just and it appealed to, uh, you know, a mindset that's very keen on big ideas. It doesn't come that much bigger. When when we try to talk about the, the concept, one of the problems that I, I find myself always running into is a sense of scale. How did you start to be comfortable with those scales? That's not easy. I agree, and I'm not sure to what extent you ever really get comfortable with those scales. I mean, it's one of the reasons why I started the um, the geoengineering book um, with an image of what the Earth looks like from the stratosphere. When you're flying in a U-2, not that I ever have done, um, you're part of the system. You're the, it is the very, very thin atmosphere that's holding you up. You're moving around, you're looking at the planet, you're looking at the processes of the planet. And so, 
big scale, uh, that's one way of getting it. For me, the key uh, non-climate part of thinking about geoengineering is the nitrogen cycle. Um, that's, in fact, I I argue that in many ways it's a it's a better analogy than people might expect for climate geoengineering for deliberately trying to change the climate because the nitrogen cycle humans didn't just accidentally change the nitrogen cycle humans took over the nitrogen cycle knowingly um, when in the late 19th century chemists are saying we know that we're going to run out of nitrogen fertilizer for, for, for farms and that's going to be a bad thing and we're going to run out of nitrogen feedstocks for making explosives and that's going to be a terrible thing um, and so humans thought about scientific, about what we would now call technological fixes to that problem, and they, of course, found out how they could take nitrogen out of the atmosphere and turn it into nitrates and ammonia, sorry, and turn it into nitrates and ammonia, and then we were off to the races. That used to be a thing that bacteria did. Now it's a thing that humans do. Humans do more of it than soil bacteria. I think on a whole planet basis, the bacteria in the ocean probably still slightly put bacteria in charge, but it's a very fine balance. Um, and so there's a very long way back to your question about how you feel um, the Anthropocene. One of the things that I think is profound, it's not quite a feeling, but knowing that something like 40% of the nitrogen that makes up your muscle fibers that makes up the synapses in your neurons, that makes up the DNA that describes all sorts of aspects of who you are and who your offspring might be, 40% of that comes from factories. You know, it doesn't, it came out of the air, people took it out of the air deliberately. And this is one of the things I find really interesting about thinking about conservation in an Anthropocene context. In some ways, modernity takes us away we, we read modernity as taking us away from nature, that somehow our more urban lifestyles remove us from nature. And there's obviously a sense in which that's true, but there's another sense in which our global impact as a, as a race, as a species, brings us very, very intimately in contact with nature in a way we haven't been before. I'm curious, around the offices of, say, The Economist or around a dinner table or a pub, what are the questions that keep coming up that engage you the most about this Anthropocene concept? What should our relation be? To, uh, should our relation be to the Anthropocene future rather than the Anthropocene present? Is the Anthropocene basically, and this would be sort of like the Clive Hamilton view, something that you want to get out of as quickly as you can? Um, or is the, the Anthropocene um, in the Earl Ellis sort of view something that you want to optimize and that you want to? Um, Take a, take a role in shepherding through to something that looks like a happy ending. And although I don't agree with Earl on everything, I think that the position, my position is more towards that end. Um, otherwise, I probably wouldn't have written a book about geoengineering. I think that um, there are forms of human activity that can make the Anthropocene better. I think we can have a politics that makes the Anthropocene better. Again, going back to um, that image of flying in the stratosphere in a U-2 with which, I, with which I start my book, the U-2 is an extraordinary technological expression of human ability. The people who fly them are flying higher than anyone in the 1950s, are flying any, higher than anyone has ever flown before. They are sort of like, in terms of what they can see, they are approaching traditional ideas of godhood. They can see whole countries at a time. They are 
above, they're not above all the air, but they're above the blueness of the air. They're under the black sky. They're navigating by the stars. Um, they have these huge wings at their command, um, and they can go for hours and hours without talking to anyone. They operate in conditions of radio silence. It's an extraordinary vision of the empowered individual. Um, these people are almost like, you know, they're almost superheroes, except they are also unbelievably constrained. And they are strapped in, they are the first pilots to be strapped in pressure suits. They can't scratch their noses. They can't, um, they can't reach all the controls in their cockpit. They have to have a little wooden paddle to reach some of the controls. And, they and the constraints of the actual flight of the plane are incredibly strict. Uh, they, there's an idea in aerodynamics called the coffin corner, whereby if you go a little bit faster, you run into Mach turbulence. And if you go a little bit slower, you stall. At the, at the operating altitude of the early U-2s, the coffin corner is only 10 knots. You're incredibly constrained in what you can actually do in these extraordinarily able planes. And that image, it seems to me, is a very strong one for understanding human relations with technology, that you can be at the same time hugely empowered and hugely constrained and to some extent trapped but also to feel yourself as, you know, some of these pilots, I've talked to a few of these pilots, and they said that sometimes it could feel quite extraordinarily transcendent um, to be up there. And, you know, that's the technical, technological anthropocene, to be constrained and also extraordinarily able. The difference is that they were isolated, and those of us trying to develop an anthropocene politics on Earth need to not be isolated. We need to talk to each other. Another uh, another sort of point of view that has come up a lot is this feeling like everything is out of control, right? Like we've messed with everything in a way that we need to try to find a way of reharnessing the reins, taking back control. And this actually translates much more over towards your most recent book, which is all about humans, I will say crazily, trying to take control of their planet. Why did you choose geoengineering as the focal point to talk about control? Well, I think because I was—I mean, I actually contrast this in the in 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 a chapter in the middle of the book. I actually make a contrast, and I say that taking control is not the issue. Taking care is the issue, and that I think that's my that's my and for me that's the emotional core of the book. But my view of geoengineering. Um, isn't so much that it's about controlling the planet as somewhat changing the boundary conditions. I think it's there's a there's an extraordinary um, hubris to thinking that you can control things in fine detail, and certainly that I can lay out how people should seek to do that. But there are sort of like boundary conditions which I think we know enough about biogeophysical realities of life and planet that you can at least imagine. Having, a, having an effect on those boundary conditions. And the obvious ones are how much um, infrared leaves the Earth and how much sunlight comes in. And obviously, this slides into questions of control, because at some point, you decide how much you let in and how much you let out. But I don't think it's an, it's an attempt to fine-tune control. It's an attempt to sort of like make and here we go, make the, make the shape of the energy flows different the envelope different and thus to make the envelope of human possibility different how does that not scare the shit out of you like honestly this this is weird stuff we're talking about this is indeed weird stuff and um 
why, how can it not scare the shit out of me? Well, to some extent it can, we'll come back to that. Um, partly it's because I know how scary the current state of the atmosphere is anyway, right? I mean, I'm living with huge amounts of carbon dioxide being pumped into the atmosphere all the time, and that does kind of scare me. I, I sense behind your question the idea that some very bad climatic um, set of events might trigger a sense that, okay, we now have to turn to this more powerful thing. And that's a view of geoengineering that I find increasingly worrying. One of, aspect of the worry is that it assumes that geoengineering must be used at very large scale rather than as, 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 some, as a sort of like comparatively minor um, adjustment to the to the edges of the envelope, and I can just feel how bad that sounds to people. But I'm sorry, that is how I how I think about it. But if you if you think you have to wait until say Greenland is collapsing and then try and do something about that with a massive geoengineering program, I think that's that's absolutely that's really frightening to me. The idea of using geoengineering as a response to a major climate catastrophe like that, because a it absolutely amps up all the power relations between uh, between nations because if something's happening like that, we're already having an international crisis because of the thing you're trying to forestall. B, you have to go in sort of like hot and heavy um, with sort of like maximum uh, impact in minimum time. And C, the Earth system is already clearly, by the, ver by the very virtue of the fact that you're doing this, already unstable. You know, if it was, so the idea that you only do this in a big way when people are freaked out and the Earth system is already unstable strikes me as a very, very bad way to do it. Do you look at anything like, you know, COP21 or any of these events as sort of helping or hurting geoengineering? Are, are, is there anything happening recently that's sort of changing the narrative in a positive way for you or changing it in a negative way? I think COP21 is a really, really fascinating and really does... Um, open up an interesting window for the discussion of geoengineering research. I was at COP21 and very impressed by what I saw. And, you know, it helps that the big players all wanted to get an agreement. Um, but the agreement was much more, significantly more, than the lowest common denominator that would have basically satisfied everyone going in, or one would have thought would have satisfied everyone going in. So it not only... Uh, not only was it an agreement, and thus, thus in that very basic way, um, uh, sort of like distinguishes itself from Copenhagen, it was an agreement. It was an agreement um, which has a lot of interesting mechanism in it, um, ways to ramp up commitments, ways to reassess what needs to be done, ways to distribute money, though, you know, those are still being developed, but there's an architecture there, there's an architecture there for verifying that people are doing what they say they're doing. And so that's all. I think that's great. I think it's very powerful. But there remains this very strong and fundamental point that the ambition that's enshrined in the Paris Agreement of keeping um, climate change well below two degrees um, above the pre-industrial and ideally at 1.5 degrees above the pre-industrial, as you and I'm sure the listeners know, that ambition could not be met by the pledges that have been made by the countries going into this. And the nations are aware of this, and so they've talked about mechanisms for ratcheting up ambition in the future. But they've also set themselves, or rather they've set the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the task of looking at what it would take to achieve or to be likely to achieve 1.5 or 2 degrees um, 
over over the course of the century. And that process of actually examining um, those questions is one, I think, which will bring people, force people to some extent to confront issues about geoengineering. What you're seeing in Paris and post-Paris is that people are already assuming that carbon dioxide is going to be taken out of the atmosphere in the second half of the 20th century, 21st century, even though they do not have the technologies that would be um, able to do that, don't have them in any sort of developed form, don't have policy processes for actually doing that. We don't know how, where, and by what means people would take tens, hundreds of billions of tons of carbon out of the atmosphere. And yet we're acting as though that's actually going to happen. The narrative of 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 humans interacting with the atmosphere intentionally is has been one of fear, primarily because we look at climate change and they go, yes, it's scary, but we didn't know we were doing it. So it's a little bit easier for us to say, mm, OK, we're, we're not we don't feel as bad about that. But if we mess with the atmosphere intentionally, if we mess with our climate intentionally and we screw up. That's really scary. But the more research that gets done, as is, happens with everything, the more you know, the less scary things are. And it seems like, actually, I don't know. Where are we on that pivot point with geoengineering? Do you think we've learned enough? And what do you think needs to happen for that narrative to change going forward? I think that's part of what you're doing with this book. No, I, I must say, yeah, that's exactly the sort of, that's what I'm trying, I'm get, trying to get people to think about and discuss exactly those issues. Um I think there's obviously, in any technological um, intervention like this, it's important to think about the risks. It's very important to think about the risks to the people who are already most marginalized. Um, so I think very seriously um, issues about how large-scale geoengineering could affect the, hydro uh, the hydrological balance. Um, and I think that's a very important area to look at. Also, questions about what geoengineering does to the ozone layer. So those sorts of things. If you have options for reducing harm, you have to be willing to have those conversations. You, I think it's wrong, much as I respect the, view, the views of people who see um, a real challenge here to the integrity of nature, to an, a, a challenge to the, the, who find the idea of the earth as a planned artifact grossly distasteful, I think you have to balance your views on that about with the question about if you think climate risks are really serious and even with good faith attempts at strong emissions reduction there is still residual risk that you would rather not have then you have to look at how to reduce harm just examining it helps you get a better grip on what it is that humans do in the planet how humans can relate to the planet what the extent of that relation is so i don't think you have to predicate your discussion of geoengineering on understanding the Anthropocene. But I think thinking about geoengineering is a great way to understand the Anthropocene. It's a great tool to that end. Thank you so much, Oliver. This has been a real pleasure. Thank you very much, Miles. Generation Anthropocene is Miles Traer, Leslie Chang, and me, Mike Osborne. Our theme music is by Maserati. We want to thank Pam Matson, Dean of Stanford's School of Earth, Energy, and Environmental Sciences, 
We also want to thank Tom Hayden. Generation Anthropocene is also made possible by Worldview Stanford, whose mission is to create interdisciplinary learning experiences for professionals. This episode was recorded at KZSU Stanford 90.1. Our website is genanthro.com, and you can find us on Twitter at genanthropocene. That's it for the show this week. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.